Please keep your Bibles open. We will, as usual, we'll walk through this passage together this morning. Friendly fire and the Father's will. Friendly fire and the Father's will. So let's pause one more time just for a few moments and ask for the Lord's help today. Our Father in heaven, it's a beautiful thing to be able to call you Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign God of the universe, the giver of all good things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the author of redemptive history, the eternal, omnipotent, infinite, holy, majestic, true, triune God. And we gather this morning to call you Father. And on Father's Day, we're thankful for the earthly fathers that you have given us, Lord, that have been leaders for us, examples for us, have impacted our lives for the purpose of the kingdom of glory. We cannot state how much of an influence and much of an impact and how necessary it is for godly men to be leading in the home and in the church and in the community. We are familiar with, in our region of the country, good old boys. We need godly men. And we're so thankful for each of them, Lord. And so on Father's Day, we pray that we would step into those kinds of shoes, whether or not we had that type of earthly godly father in our lives or not that you would call us to something higher than just sailing through this life or rumbling through this life that you would give us lord purpose and meaning through christ and the gospel to rise above all of that and to set the pace and to set the tone in our homes in the church for what it means to be a man, a godly man, a God-fearing man, a Christ-honoring man, a gospel-thriving man. And every man, man in this room, Father, would come before you this morning and confess how weak and how failing we are. And so we absolutely rely on your grace to strengthen us and enable us, Father, to be the leaders that you've called us to be, the godly example, the absolutely necessary godly example that our culture needs, that our sons need, that our daughters need. Make us those kinds of men So we're thankful for our fathers. We're praying to be godly fathers. And then we turn once again to you, our heavenly father. We recognize you, Lord. We honor you. We worship you today. Because everything we have, even the ability to be here, 
and sit together under the precious word of God is an absolute priceless gift. You've been so good to us, Lord. You've been so faithful in being our Father. So we give you praise and worship today and as we look to your word and we begin to see how is it that we can call you Father? How is it that we have this unspeakable, unfathomable relationship with the God of glory? It's because of your Son and what he came to do. And when we step into this passage this morning, Father, we absolutely step on holy, sacred ground. When we enter this garden and we see our Savior and what's taking place here, it renders us, God, in awe of your tremendous love and the overwhelming, willing sacrifice of our Savior to reconcile us to the Father. So these are precious moments. This is a, this is a wonderful time. So Lord, would you move in incredible ways to increase our faith, to draw us to faith, to equip us and encourage us for the day in which we live is a very trying, difficult, challenging day. So what an opportunity for the gospel. Please have your precious way in our hearts as we look to you and listen for you. In Christ's name, amen. Friendly fire and the Father's will. So when we're in chapter 26, you know, Matthew has 28 chapters. When we're in chapter 26, it's moving at a very rapid pace. As Jesus nears the cross, the, the events that are leading up to his death are beginning to unfold rather quickly. And so chapter 26 is really filled with scene after scene, setting after setting, and it's moving us quickly and closer to the cross of chapter 27. And the reason why each of these scenes, Matthew is, is careful that each of these snapshots, uh, these, these quick views of Christ on the way to the cross, the reason why Matthew is, has included these is, is that each and every one of them are so vitally important in, in allowing us to understand just how monumental is the cross we step into these scenes and, and we watch how our Savior spent his final hours before his death. And there's a tremendous significance for us as readers of the Scripture today to be the, uh, so to speak, the fly on the wall in these snapshot scenes of Christ moments before the cross. In the first scene of this chapter, Jesus is in the home of Simon the leper, and he's anointed with precious oil by a woman there. Significantly there because it's preparing Christ for his burial. In the following scene, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and in that way he's preparing his disciples for his approaching death. So he's being prepared, they are being prepared. 
And he also reveals in those moments in a kind of discreet way who, who the betrayer is. And then the next scene, Jesus is at the Mount of Olives. So we change scenery again. He's at the Mount of Olives now and, and he's with his disciples and he has that confrontation with Peter who is pushing back against the Father's will. And he not only reveals in that passage that his disciples that very night, all of them will flee from him, but even more so, Peter is actually going to deny him, not once or twice, but three times. And so now he's preparing his disciples for how they're going to fail him. He's preparing them for his death. He's preparing them for how they're going to fail in the time of his death. And then we find Jesus within the Garden of Gethsemane. So now we're at a different scene. And having realized in his humanity what is before him, that, that what's going to be required of him as he steps under the, the weight of the sin of the world and bears out the Father's wrath, he begins to pour out his soul to the Father in, in agonizing prayer, humbly then surrendering to the Father's will. In essence, he's preparing himself through prayer for the suffering that lies ahead. He's being prepared. He's preparing his disciples. He's preparing himself for what is coming. And so now in the text before us, once again, the scene changes we're in the same location, but there's different characters now. It's not just Jesus and his disciples in Gethsemane, but there's a mob that shows up, and, and they're bearing swords and, and clubs, and they're led by the religious leaders who are led by Judas. And they arrive on the scene. And so all that Jesus has been warning his disciples along the way in his ministry that was going to occur, it's now being set in motion. It's moved now. This is, this is an absolute crucial moment in redemptive history because Jesus has moved now from speaking about these things that are to take place, that now these things are taking place. As darkness descends upon the garden... In our text, the light of grace and truth continues to shine. So let's just take a, just a careful, slower look then now at what's happening here as Jesus is nearing the time of his crucifixion. And the first thing we see is friendly fire is a whole other pain in verses 47 through 50. I want us to take note that the passion of Christ, that is the sufferings of Christ on our behalf, they did not begin with the crown of thorns. They did not begin with the lashing of the cat of nine tails. Christ suffered more than the brutal physical torture of the cross. And even though his deepest pain was the spiritual pain that he bore, the spiritual torture of bearing and paying for the sin of all of those who would be in Christ, 
He also endured tremendous emotional pain as he found himself alone, as he found himself denied, as he found himself here in our text betrayed. One of his very own friendly fire. Matthew puts it here, one of the 12. That should kind of be now... It's not to us because we're probably familiar with this story. If you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you've probably heard this before. So it's not quite as shocking as as it really is. For Matthew to say, imagine being the, being the, the, the first ones reading through this, and Matthew says, one of the 12. Yeah, the, the, those 12 that Jesus particularly selected to be with him, who, who lived with him, who walked with him, who ministered with him, who he sent out to minister, those that were the closest to him, it was one of them. Friendly fire. He came to Jesus for the sole purpose of betrayal. That's a whole other level of pain. The pain Christ endured in his body was unimaginable, but before his body was torn, his heart was broken. Judas says, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. As I was reading through that, you know, I couldn't help but think, you know, he, he, he could have simply pointed him out. If he was determined to betray him, he, he could have simply walked up and stood beside him. Or even just spoken to him. Even just expressed his greetings to him. But he chose to betray with a kiss. A, a kiss. A kiss is a very simple act, but it carries a profound meaning. To kiss someone means that you express great affection for them. And and many cultures, as is expressed here in our text, exchange a a kiss of greeting, of friendship. So I I take it that Judas didn't want anything to be out of place. He he didn't want to be spotted. He He didn't want to be figured out before Christ was seized, so he just went along with everything that would be expected of in that culture. And he went ahead, and he kissed him. Sometimes you kiss a loved one who is grieving or distraught to express comfort. Most often we, in our culture, think of a kiss to express devotion or love or passion. Of all the ways Judas could have betrayed Christ, he did so with an act that is meant to express love, kinship, commitment, affection. So it wasn't just who betrayed him, one of the twelve. It wasn't just that he betrayed him. He turned his back on Christ while... As the saying goes, placing the knife of betrayal in Christ's back. It was how he betrayed him. By taking a beautiful token of love and turning it into an ugly act of betrayal. Taking something that was supposed to be meant to be precious and adored. And making it something very ugly 
and painful. And the significance of that cruel sign of betrayal was not lost by Christ. He felt every ounce of the sting of Judas's dagger that was cloaked in a kiss. And he turned to Judas and he said, Friend, the eyes of the Savior turned to Judas with the knife already in his back and called him, Friend, do what you came to do. Friendly fire. So I just want to remind us, church, this morning, there is not a temptation that you have faced that Christ has not faced. There is not a struggle that you encounter that Christ did not encounter. And there is not an emotional pain that you have experienced that Jesus didn't experience. And so he said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Over in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to the crowds about about what's being rumored about him. And he says, you know what people say? You know what people say about me because I hang out with unbelievers. I I, I choose to be with unbelievers, to, to go seek the sick. And he says, you know, they, they call me a glutton and a drunkard. And they call me a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus was a friend to Judas right up through when Judas was the betrayer of Jesus. He called him friend. Right up to the last minute, Jesus held the door open for Judas. It was Judas that slammed it shut. And so he told him, do what you came to do, which Jesus already knew and was already told was to betray the Son of God. So Jesus is saying, do what you came to do, because you see in our previous text, in the garden, when Jesus pouring out his human soul before the Father, Jesus had already determined to do what he had came to do. And that is to save unworthy, undeserving sinners. Sinners like Judas that would commit unspeakable evil. Sinners like Simon Peter who have said he, says he will never do it and he's getting ready to do it. Sinners like you and me. And so from this text, I appeal to you, don't close the door on your only hope. Embrace Christ and find life and salvation. Friendly fire. But I want us to see throughout the rest of this text, and I want us to apply it to our hearts, that friendly fire doesn't mean that it's beyond or outside the Father's will. Even when it hurts the most, God is still in control and the Father still has a greater purpose. 
And so the second thing we see in this passage from verses 51 through 54 is for us to never surrender the Scripture. Never surrender the Scripture. So it moves from this scene with Judas and Jesus and they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him and now the focus switches to another action that's taking place. So there's a lot happening in this text. There's a tremendous amount of activity and all of a sudden one of the disciples, it happens to be Simon Peter, he, he leaps forward out of, out of all this uh, confusion that's taking place He leaps forward and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now you can tell here Simon Peter's a fisherman, right? He's not a soldier. He can cast a net, but he's not quite as a marksman with the the sword. Well, when you look at that, you know, from from just from Peter's perspective and, and just from you know, a fellow human as we're reading this, we we almost want to cheer for him right here, don't we? Because, I mean, he, he's at least trying, right? He, he's at least doing something. He, 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 he's, he's fighting, he's resisting, and we're almost thinking, yeah, yeah. I mean, before we get to the part that we discover he actually does deny him, he actually does leave him, he, he's at least here trying, right, to, to live up to those claims that he made. I will never leave you. He, even, if I, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And so he's... He's at least initially, isn't he? He's trying to fight back. The problem is he's fighting the wrong fight. He's fighting the Father's will. And in fact, Christ has told Simon Peter specifically, remember Christ at one time, Simon was trying to discourage him and dissuade him and change his mind. And at one time, Christ turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. But he's still doing it, isn't he? Peter's kind of stubborn. He's still fighting against the Father's will. He still doesn't want this to happen. He's still pushing back against providence. And a lot of times we find ourselves doing the same thing, don't we? Kicking against the pricks trying to stop the sovereign God of the universe from accomplishing his will, pushing against what we know is God's purpose and will for our lives. That was Simon Peter here. So Jesus says, what? He says, put your sword back in its place. Don't do that. This is not your fight. You won't win against the Father's will. This is going to happen. This is going to take place. And then Jesus says, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. People have used that verse to mean a lot of things. You know what I think it means? I think think Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to get yourself killed. And it's not your time. Put up your sword. This is the time to follow the Father's will. This is not the time to fight. And then he reasons. He reasons with Peter after he settles him down. He reasons with him. You know, your gut reaction there to take a sword and and do what you can. And and 
Peter's like us, right? When we try to do it in our own, all he could do was cut off an ear. Okay, a mob shows up with clubs and swords and Peter, with all of his might and he takes an ear off. Woo! That's us trying to push against God's will. And so Jesus says, do you think we just need a display of power here, Simon? Because you know, I got that covered, right? I mean, you've been with me for three years. I just, you, you've watched me just speak and steal the storm. You, you've watched me multiply the loaves. You've, you've watched me giving sight to the blind. You, you, I've got the power covered. If that's all we need, I can call 12 legions of angels right now. That, that means a whole legion for me and a whole legion for each of the 11 of you that are left with me. And that's plenty. That's not what is to be displayed right now. It's not the time to fight against men. It's time to follow the Father's will. This is how the Scripture must be fulfilled. And that's what Jesus says, isn't it? It must be so. So in one sense, because it must be so, in one sense there was nothing that could be done at this point. The scripture must be fulfilled. That is the suffering servant who has come to take upon our sin. The suffering servant must be crucified. The the perfect sacrifice must be given. The Lamb of God must be slain to take away the sin of the world. This is God's plan for the redemption of sinners. In fact, this is the only plan for the redemption of sinners. This must happen, so so don't fight it. Surrender to it, submit to it. But in a whole other sense, right? Because Jesus Jesus has just said in in reasoning with Peter, he's just said in, in a completely other sense, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was in charge of the heavenly host. He is the Lord of the host of heaven. And all heaven then was at his disposal, Hell had gathered in the garden, and heaven could wipe them out right there on the spot. But as it is, as it always is, when hell is raging at its most in in that one instant, if we just take a step back and see it from God's perspective, hell is simply just doing heaven's bidding. God is sovereign. So you see, there was another option for Christ. I can call 12 legions of angels, but but that option wasn't the Father's will. It's reminiscent, right, of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Trying to get him to step out of the Father's will just once. If he would just put a toe outside of the Father's will, he would no longer be the perfect sacrifice. There would be no Savior. So if Christ would have taken that option, he would have disobeyed the Father. He would have broken the, he would have transgressed the will of the Father, and there would be no Savior. So no matter how heavy the trial that lay before him that caused him to agonize in the garden, 
No matter how eager his disciples were to see him escape, imagine looking at those disciples and you know in their heart of hearts they are begging Jesus, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. There's got to be another way. You're supposed to be king. You're not supposed to be crucified. No matter the fury of the evil mob before him, Christ would never surrender the scripture. Never surrender the scripture. And so he said, but how then should the scripture be fulfilled? Dear friends, that must be, that conviction for God's word must be our north star as we navigate through the pressures and trials of this life and particularly of this day. We must hold true to the anchor of Scripture. And oh, we will be pressed. How we will be pressed at times to compromise Scripture, to ignore Scripture. The world will press upon us to give up scriptural conviction. We will be emotionally swayed by argument and debate and friends and loved ones. We will be tempted frequently to take the easy way out, to be silent, to take a step back, to hit the like button. To loosen our grip on truth. So church, we must follow Christ. No matter the pressure and no matter the consequence and no matter what we see that lies ahead, we must never surrender Scripture. Why? Because Scripture is truth and only truth will set you free. Only truth will save And only truth will prevail. As believers in Christ, following Christ, especially in this world, especially in this day, we are going to be called upon in very soon, in the days that lie ahead for us, we're going to be called upon to give up a lot in this life. You can't live in this world as a follower of Christ and not be touched. So we're going to, in days ahead, be challenged and called upon to give up a lot, but never, 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 never surrender Scripture. Never surrender Scripture. And then finally, I want us to see together in verses 55 and 56, there is always a higher plan than the plans of men. And that's why the title of the message today really is Friendly Fire and the Father's Will. Friendly Fire, that's the plans of men. The Father's Will, that's the higher plan that's at place above and beyond the Friendly Fire. That goes for Jesus here in this text. That goes for you and your life and and me and my life as we're walking to please the Lord. 
And when we come to this passage, Jesus speaks to this mob that has gathered oh, with, with all, uh, a display of all of their power and might, right? And he first of all exposes in their, in their massive display, right? There's a crowd of people who have gathered with, with clubs and swords. It, it's a display of, of might, of, of dominance. And Jesus exposes their cowardice, doesn't he? Pretending to be so mighty. He exposes their cowardice because here they are showing up in the middle of the night in a secluded garden where no one else is around but the disciples and they have this vast display of power? Well, if they were so bold and their cause was so just, why didn't they just come for him out in the open? It's almost as if they knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew what they were doing was wrong. But their agenda was driving them anyway, right? Ideology can make you do a lot of wrong things. You see, no matter if they tried to keep this false arrest secret, there was one who knew their plans all along. So no matter how steep their defiance of Christ, they were merely escorting Christ to his plan. They were mere escorts. They were there for his blood, not realizing he was there to give it. That was the plan, the higher plan all along. There's always a higher plan above the plans of men, church. Above my plan, there's always a higher plan. Above the plans of those who come against the gospel and oppose the church, there's always a higher plan. God is always at work. However dark the days or horrific the trial, we can take comfort and peace in knowing When the world does the worst it can do to us, all of their fierce wrath will give way to the Father's will for our good and his glory. When everything in life seems to be going against our will, the Father's will for us remains. There is a higher plan than the plans of men. So from their perspective, right, these who have shown up in the garden that night, from their perspective, if they could just silence Christ and put an end to his blasphemous nonsense about being the Messiah and, and the Savior of the world and God's only Son, once we can shut all of that up, this will be over. And yet here's a crowd that are here 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years from then, to worship him. I don't see that mob, but we see Christ in the living gospel. The disciples realized then, we see in the last words of our passage today, the disciples realize at this point Jesus is going to surrender himself. He's, he's making that clear. This is... The scriptures are being fulfilled. 
Nothing else is gonna happen. I'm going to be arrested. And he's gonna surrender himself to this mob. And so every single one of his disciples, all of his disciples left him and fled just as he said they would. Just as they said they wouldn't. But you see, when Jesus said over and over, the scripture must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. You see, the scriptures not only spoke of his death, the scriptures also spoke of his resurrection. And the scriptures have also spoken of his return as king of kings and and lord of lords. So those fleeing disciples, we will see them again as fearless disciples because Jesus will win in the end. Fathers, let's make that our prayer. Let's look to Christ and all that God has accomplished for us in him and not be fleeing fathers, but fearless fathers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. We give you praise and glory for Christ our Savior who we have just seen surrender himself to an angry, evil, wicked mob because he knows that your will is, a, is the higher plan at work. We're so thankful for Christ and now help us to apply that very lesson, that very scenario in our hearts and in our lives. And to not find ourselves as Simon Peter trying to push back against providence but find ourselves as the Lord Jesus Christ simply surrendering to your will and understanding that everything that's happening around us and to us and in us, that there's a higher plan at work. So help us, Father, to keep our eyes upon Christ, our eyes upon the cross, our eyes upon glory. Fill us with your grace and with your spirit to live in this world, but not of this world. So, Father, I pray right now that if we need Christ as Savior, today would be the day. And if we are in Christ, that we would be renewed and and refreshed in our passion and zeal for Christ, in our understanding of our circumstances and of our sovereign God. And as fathers here today, Lord, continue to mold us and shape us to be men of God first. And fathers and leaders next. We ask all of it in your precious name and for your glory. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.